From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I'm your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for FPNA. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome our guest, Larissa Melanchuk, who is, lives in the UK, originally is from Ukraine. She's uh, known throughout the world for her FPNA uh, knowledge. She earned her FPNA certificate from the Association of Finance Professionals. She's a chartered management accountant from SEMA. She has nearly 15 years of uh, various FPNA experience. And nearly the last 10 years, she's been helping move the profession forward. First, she worked for AFP, and then she also now runs her own business, FPNA Trends Group. Larissa, welcome to the show. We're really thrilled to have you today. So maybe can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up where you're at. Paul, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. So excited to be uh, at this program. And you, you are doing fantastic uh, work for FPNA professionals around the globe. A little bit about my background. So my first education is very technical, is very scientific. Believe this or not, but from year 17 until 23, for six years, I studied physics of materials, uh, mathematics. So I have an uh, engineering background. I'm also British Qualified Accountant, a member of Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. I'm CGMA. was one of those who volunteered uh, to develop uh, FPNA certification for AFP. And actually, I've always been working for somebody else, working for big corporations uh, as a FPNA director, head of FPNA for those leading companies. And just 10 years ago, I went outside of corporate world and I created my own company. So at the moment, I'm founder and CEO of uh, FPNA Trends Group and International FPNA Board. So this is very briefly my background. Great. No, and that, that's where I know you from. I know we met through FPNA Trends. Maybe can you tell our audience a little bit about how that came about? You know what it is and how it you know provides value to the FPNA community. Paul, uh, the way how it came out actually, it's from my passion about FPNA. And from my practical experience, you know, when you are running FPNA process for the whole globe, when you are responsible for the whole Europe, you're working for different companies, you come obviously to different experiences. You know, you can see how FPNA could be very, very powerful, or it could be really weak, depending on culture and many other aspects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to me, I remember, especially during those times in the office, it always was the question. How other companies are doing this and how, what we can do together in order to maximize the environment of change, the environment of positive uh, FPNA experience and how we can remove all of those behavioral and um, cultural issues from FPNA because we all know where is the budget. There are, there are a lot of games. Yeah. So <laughs> it's all came from my curiosity, you know, and the first meeting in London uh, that we had. And by the way, at that time, we had this in collaboration with uh, AFP. It was all about this. You see, so what are the trends? What are the experiences? And so on and so far. 
what we also realized that uh, this is the collaboration of people, you know, uh, reading the books, it's important. Receiving your qualifications is important. But it's such an incredible environment of change that it's so important for us to meet and to exchange and to learn from each other, yeah? And because FPNA, this is such a subject that uh, different people see different pieces. We, we have to put this together. So when I started to do this in, independently, international FPNA both in London, you know, it was just the meeting for uh, several people. And then it became so popular that we started to expand this to different countries. Believe this or not, uh, but at the moment it has 27 chapters Great. in 16 countries on four continents. And I'm very proud of what we managed to achieve. So generally speaking, it's all about education. Our website has more than 650,000 subscribers. We have community, so those digital and face-to-face -face events. We have research, those our surveys and research papers and white papers. We have AIML, FPNA committee, and some advisory services as well. So in brief, this is where we are. That's great. I appreciate you providing that summary. And just, you know, to tell a little bit of my experience with FPNA trends and Larissa, as, as I was getting started, I mean, I think I wrote my first article for somebody about six years ago. And then it'll probably have been about four years ago, kind of came across the FPNA trends group and joined it. And at one point I had offered to help moderate. I think that's where we first started to interact. Every, you know, once a month or so, I'd post a couple posts on some different subject and kind of moderate the, the commentary. And that's where I started to get to know people. And I know then you invited me to be on a webinar. I did a couple different webinars, you know, and out of that and other experiences is really kind of where my, you know, my brand and my business has come. So I really appreciate what you do. I've enjoyed being, you know, a part of FPNA Trends, being part of the LinkedIn community, having been on a few of your webinars, you know, been involved in some of your research. I really value what you provide for the community. So I appreciate you explaining that. And I know I'm, I will always be grateful for the organization you have because it's helped me kind of find an audience and help me find my voice in FPNA and, you know, add my uh, piece to the community, so to speak. So appreciate that answer. But maybe if you could talk a little bit, I know the last few years have obviously uh, been challenging for FPNA, you know, challenging you for you, for all of us. But how have you seen the pandemic? You've gone around and talked to different people and, you know, watched that unfold. How have you seen that impact FPNA and just organizations in general? Paul, such a great question and timely as well, because just one month ago, I came back from my, my one month trip to North America. And we restarted our face-to-face -face, uh, meetings at the end of uh, April from London. Actually, all together, 12 meetings, eight in North America, four in Europe, exactly on this subject, you know, and the room full of those senior decision makers, mm -hmm. CEO and finance directors from leading company. The main conclusions are that obviously pandemic accelerated the need for analytical transformation in FPNA. And of course, the world of FPNA uh, at the moment of pandemic, it was divided from the point of view of those lucky that already managed to implement analytics, managed to restructure. And those actually who had their debt budgets and unrealistic forecasts, and uh, they spent probably the last six, seven months in order to finalize it. Yeah. So this is the first one, uh, the acceleration and also the understanding that it's needed. Uh, the second one, it's very, very fundamental for our profession. You know, like uh, as qualified chatted management accountant, the classical way that you have to have your budget, your 
quarterly or monthly forecasts. You have to do your variance analysis. And the reality is such at the moment that actually a change everything fundamental for our uh, management accounting practices. So what we have to have now, we have to look at the world uh, from the point of different scenarios. Scenario planning, not only those three scenarios we always had, but those scenarios that you can play on demand at different level of organization. We call this not scenario planning, we call this scenario management. And mm-hmm. we emphasize that uh, this is the uh, mindset. This is the mindset. This is the, such a fundamental change to organization. And, and I wouldn't say that every organization is ready yet because I have some insights from our survey, PNA Trends 2022 surveys. So only 6% of organizations are able to run scenarios in real time. Yeah. But actually, mm-hmm. altogether, 49%. So half of those, they say they either don't run this at all, not able, or if they do, it's very, very difficult. So this is about scenario uh, management. And of course, what happened, happened, it's not only in FPNA, but in FPNA in particular, the way how we work with our team, this new generation of people that are working remotely, and now we are starting to go back to the offices, but there are a lot of opportunities actually to hire uh, the best in class talent and not exactly in the US if you're in the US they could be mm-hmm. anywhere yeah but it requires uh, the, the new way how we build our team how we progress with our fpna business partnering requirements so those are the main things and of course uh, the need for transformation is there but as i said the companies are at different level of this transformation no that makes a lot of sense and if i can recap and just make sure we kind of capture that it sounds like which isn't surprising, analytics, and just the need for data, the need to be able to do analysis and have data-driven decision-making. You know, that, that's really been, been accelerated. The, you know, scenario, and I really like the term you use, scenario management, to think of it as a mindset. It's not just about running a best, worst, and base case and being done. It's about thinking in scenarios and thinking about the different range of possibilities and being able to prepare and plan for that. Makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, the other two things you mentioned is obviously the change in how we work. So many people can work from home. And, you know, two examples I've seen recently of that, two friends of mine that have always worked for Utah companies, you know, they're here in Utah. They're now, you know, I think one took an FP&A job to head a company in the Bay Area, but from here, right? He'll travel occasionally, but, you know, he's doing the job remotely. And another one, I think he was either had an offer or he took it with the Bay Area company. You know, and these are great leaders that five years ago, they may never got that opportunity. But the pandemic has changed what you're willing to hire and where you're willing to hire. So definitely that. And then the last thing you mentioned is just accelerating the digital transformation, the need for a well thought out and planned technology stack. It goes beyond Excel. It goes beyond just having an ERP. There's, you know, that business intelligence, there's data science, there's the planning tool. You know, there's so much that now falls under the CFO. So I appreciate you sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. So what would you say are maybe the biggest challenges you've seen as you've talked to all these organizations, you've talked about the changes, but what are the biggest challenges they're facing now in trying to change and embrace, you know, kind of this new environment? Paul, the thing is that the new challenges, and they are not new for us at all. (laughs) And as the result of the pandemic, we realize through our survey that there are challenges with data, with data quality. It's even accelerated. And I will give you examples. So 
56% of our respondents, they said that they make decisions based on data. It's not bad, isn't it? But then you ask the question, what is happening with uh, those 44? Yeah. So what is happening with them? But actually, when you look at the uh, progression over the last two years since pandemic, this figure decreased by 10%. So it's in year 2020, when the pandemic just started, it was 66. And also we look at that people still spend a lot of time on data validation, on data claims. Yeah. And when we're asking the questions, uh, we realize that uh, it's not only the quality of data, it's also the fact that historical data with all of those changes, uh, changes in business models, uh, changes in business environment, they are not exactly the indication what is going to happen in the future. So it's mm-hmm. another, uh, because it's not only uh, data problems that we identified, we identified that less people are satisfied with their forecast quality. And we just finalized this survey. So it's very, very fresh data for 2022. So 39% of people are satisfied with their forecast. And it's decreased 15% from year 2020. So, and again, we are not surprised because, okay, what forecast quality you're talking about when it's not one forecast? You have to scan the environment. You have to have... um, environment where you can play this on demand quickly at different levels of organization. Yeah. So those are the biggest challenges. Obviously, uh, there are many others, but we can talk about them as we speak. Sure. Yeah, no, and I'm not surprised by either of those, right? Data. I mean, I I know roles where I've spent most of my time cleaning data. You're like, okay, I just want to get back to actually doing the analysis and driving the business forward. But often, if you don't have good data, you can't drive the business forward until you figure that out. And I thought it was really interesting. I was listening. Somebody had shared on LinkedIn that uh, he specializes in data. He's written a book about data analysis. And he was listening to an expert who said, you know, even with all these low-code and no-code tools, he sees data getting more complex because there's so much of it. It's going to get harder, not easier to analyze, which is kind of the opposite. Everybody thinks, well, all these great tools are coming. It's just going to get easier and easier. But the challenge is the amount of data is growing exponentially at the same time. So you got to get even smarter at what data do you need to look at? How do you need to think about data? Because we can't analyze it all. Obviously, we can use machines to help with that. But I'm not surprised that you mentioned data, just, you know, from what I hear from people. And then quality of forecast. Again, when you're in an environment you've never been in before, it's really hard to be accurate. I mean, it's hard enough to be accurate to start with, right? The planning process isn't about getting an accurate number. I always like to say, if I could be that accurate, I'd be sitting on a beach somewhere because I would have made a fortune on the stock market. But I can help you think through your plan and make smart assumptions. But I'm not a fortune teller. So those make a lot of sense. We will be right back. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. 
Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And now let's get back to our episode. What else have you seen as you've gone around and talked, you know, in these different organizations? Have you seen different things in different regions? Like, you know, some regions of the world you found have been doing a lot better on certain things, or have you found a pretty consistent across the board that everybody's struggling with the same, you know, same challenges? Paul, it's an excellent question. And I would say that with our 27 chapters over the last uh, five years, the main conclusion is that the trends are global, but obviously each chapter has uh, own features. Yeah. And just uh, from the latest experience, uh, what we noticed that especially painful uh, is cash flow, cash flow planning for New York and London. Yeah. And believe me or not, but all the other cities, and I said that we already had uh, 12 meetings. They mentioned cash flow, but it wasn't uh, as painful as for London and New York. Yeah. I would say that each city has a different industry and uh, bigger or small organizations. And obviously they are at different level of maturity. Mm -hmm. It's very much dependent even not uh, on the city or region. It's very much dependent uh, what maturity is company um, in terms of FPNA. And we, we will talk about maturity as well. I yeah, hope. no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And kind of speaking to that on the maturity, because I know you've done a lot of work around that. You have, uh, you know, with your chapters, you build a maturity model. So maybe can you talk a little bit about how you think of maturity for an FP&A organization, how you think about assessing an organization's maturity? Before I do this, Paul, I would like to add something in order yeah, to understand please. the overall maturity. Yeah. Again, those are the results from the latest survey. 58% of people, of our respondents, they use predominantly Excel for their planning. What it mm -hmm. means, probably they have some tools, but predominantly it's Excel, yeah? And unfortunately, it's increased by 4% from the last year. Yeah, it's even increasing and we understand why, yeah? Because of this frustration and uh, all of those, yeah? In terms of the technology transformation, it's only 19% of the total they use technology. And actually, uh, it's up 8% from last year. But it's still, if you think about this, only 19% of the respondents, they have cloud technology. And then we checked those that actually already implemented technology, implemented AIML, and there were incredible results. They really already cracked the code for FPNA. They can place scenarios practically in real time. They are talking about uh, data-driven decision-making. So That's great. this is about uh, the maturity. Maturity is changing, but it's not changing as quickly as we would like to. The best way for us to do this is to use our international FPNA board maturity model you know mm -hmm. this very well. You were part of this research. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your experience with us, Paul. But the history of this model, uh, it was at first created in London uh, more than four years ago. And then with our 27 chapters, we looked at this maturity model where companies could be depending on their where they are 
on different aspects. Yeah, so what I want to say that this model is the collective uh, thinking, co- collective conclusion of so many decision makers around the globe. And we just finalize our research. You participated at this in order to see what pandemic did to this. So generally speaking, you can find the maturity model. It's quite popular. You can find this on our website, fpnatrends.com. But the idea is that we are evaluating the company from six different points of view, from their people, from their processes, from their technology, from their data, analytics, and leadership. And depending on this, there are five different stages. And of course, those companies that are at the leading stage, there are those companies that already have everything okay with scenario management. Scenario management, this is the ultimate goal at the moment for every organization. With the push of the button, we run this scenario quickly. So very briefly about the maturity. And that makes a lot of sense. I like how you said, you know, it's not so much about location. It's really about where they are on the maturity. And you, you mentioned, you know, majority of the companies aren't on the cloud. Most are still using Excel. And, you know, honestly, that doesn't surprise me because I've been with big companies and we've had tools, but we're still doing most of our modeling in Excel and loading it to the tool. I think that's been very common. Just you know, Excel is incredibly flexible. Very few people are doing any kind of AI, ML, you know, real-time scenario modeling on an Excel platform. And that's the challenge. That's where that technology, you know, of being leading edge. Do you see most of the leading edge organizations? I'm curious, because this has been a kind of debate that we've seen in a lot of FPNA circles about, you know, data science. Should we be doing data science? Should we be having data science sitting in FPNA or should it be kind of its own organization? What have you seen with some of these leading organizations and taking advantage of, you know, data scientists and that in that realm? What are you seeing there? Uh, we see some fantastic results. Actually, what we did uh, for the last uh, couple of years, we analyzed those that started to use uh, AI ML and also cloud, comparing to the average ones. Yeah, and just uh, we, we have more details in our survey, but just to give you the idea that 63% of those AI ML implementers are driving more accurate forecast. You see, comparing to the average, which is very low. Yeah. So from this point of view, uh, definitely we need, we call them FPNA data scientists. Well, the biggest problem between those two worlds, the world of financial planning and analysis and the world of data science, is similar to what we see between different functions, yeah? We are not speaking the same language, yeah? <laughs> and this is definitely the time now when we have to create the bridges. This is why we are talking about uh, the new role, and it was part of our research as well this year, uh, we call this FPNA data scientist, mm-hmm. not the classical one, not with the uh, degree from top American university who has no idea what is finance and FPNA. We need bridges, you know. So this person could be not exactly the data scientist, but the person who really can speak both languages and who can create the bridges. So this is the new role that we need. Uh, you probably know that we've been running uh, AIML FPNA committee for uh, three and a half years, absolutely non for profit, and it's happened after my travels. I saw that some companies already started to use it. So our committee is more than three years old at the moment, and we looked at some case studies of Microsoft, of uh, Swiss Rail. We looked at the case study of Deutsche Bank and many others. Yeah. And the conclusion is that definitely this is the way to go. It will help to automate. It will help to unhide those hidden drivers we never knew exist. Yeah. 
But the question is how we should be doing this. And each company is doing this differently. You know, mm-hmm. we're still learning. And that makes a lot of sense. Every company is going to try a little different, their culture, their structure. I mean, you look at FP&A and it's not the same in two companies. So why would the way it implement data science within FP&A be the same? But two interesting things I saw is one, I got the opportunity to meet with somebody who started the uh, FP&A data science group at Facebook. And they were the first data scientists they, they hired. And she told how through using you know, data science means they were able to get to the point where they were able to predict their daily revenue within 1%, 1 to 2%, right? With traditional means, without using data science, I can't imagine you're going to be able to forecast something as complex as Facebook with all its revenue and its different businesses to that level of accuracy. Scenario where I saw that real value. And she said, you know, by the time she left, I think now the team is like 20 people. Now, most companies aren't going to have 20 FP&A data scientists. But then, you know, most companies aren't that big either. And so it's just really interesting to see how it helped them. And the second one I saw is I was talking to a company this week that they focus on companies using external data. So they take their internal and really focus on marrying it with, hey, inflation, what's happening with oil prices? What's happening with you know, weather? Whatever it might be for that business and strategically helping the leadership improve their forecasting by thinking of the external environment, which is something historically FP&A hasn't you know, been good at. A few people here and there have done it, but not much. Would you say, you know, what's your experience when it comes to using external data? Have you seen many companies have much success with that? We've been talking about both internal and external drivers for many, many years, yeah? And we always emphasize both are important. And in FP&A, we always used external drivers such as oil price or exchange rate and so on so far, yeah? The main, the fundamental question is until uh, those breakthroughs in uh, predictive analytics, machine learning for data for FP&A, we probably were running this without human intelligence, yeah? But I, I remember that in 2007, uh, before the big crisis, actually in my company, we already saw that something is coming. We already saw a lot of uh, changes. And I was lucky that uh, in my department, in ba- I worked in bank at that time, uh, we had very analytical, very mathematical people. And we created this in Excel. We didn't have technology at that time, you know? Yep. We called this survival um survival mode of our portfolio of loans. And we managed, we managed uh, to create very powerful analytics, even in Excel, yeah? But now think about this, you know, uh, there are limitations to human uh, analysis. There are limitations to Excel. And with this technology, we definitely can marry, uh, for example, customer behavior. This is one of those powerful. You see, and we can model what is going to happen, for example, with your loan portfolio, with all the change of this behavior and with more younger generation taking loans, for example. Yeah. So yep. it's something that we never will be able to do without human intelligence, how intelligent we are. So I believe in power of human intelligence and artificial intelligence going together. But I also don't believe uh, that actually the role of accountant or finance people will be in the past. It would be modified, it would be changed. That is why we have to change as well. But this is the power and this is what makes our profession so interesting at the moment. You know, I I like what you said there and I agree, it makes a lot of sense. You know, the people have been using external data forever, but this machine learning and being able to take what the machine tells you and using the human. Because obviously there's times when the machine's going to get it wrong. It's not going to understand nuances and you have to help train it and you have to have that subjectivity and, you know, the strategy and things that the human element can bring. But when you can combine the two together 
and really take advantage of cutting edge technology, you start to see best in class FP&A that can really, as you mentioned, help move a business forward, right? Yeah, good data, or at least, you know, good enough data that you can make decisions. There's never going to be 100%. Nobody's data is perfect. But, you know, you, you leverage that technology with smart people and it's amazing what can be accomplished. Absolutely. You know, what you see. I also wanted to, uh, to add a very interesting trend that we started to observe uh, at our committee. You know, those early artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, FPNA projects, normally this is the algorithm of one data scientist and very often CFOs, finance directors, they're really scared. You created a black box for us. What we are going to do with this? It's not my forecast, even it's more accurate than uh, my previous one, Yeah. So I think, and it's already started to happen, the next level of development of AIML for FPNA, it's defining those hidden drivers, both internal and external. And we're not only about external, there are so many new, very important internal drivers that we have no idea they exist, yeah? And we discovered this even before all of those in one of my companies, yeah? So machine learning, Predictive analytics will help us to identify it and to create the decision-making machine for everyone to understand. Not the black box that a data scientist creates for you. Nobody knows what is going on. This is the next step and it's already happening. No, thank you for sharing that. And that makes a lot of sense is, you know, we got to make it so everybody can understand, right? There was a time where it's like everybody was talking past each other. You have the data scientist and they got out there and started talking. You're like, what are they talking about? And, you know, kind of speaking to that, I have a book called Becoming a Data Head. And really that talks about kind of bridging that gap of being able to communicate in data without having to be a data scientist, right? And that's so important in FP&A, whether you're the person who's the data scientist or the analyst or the architect, being able to have an understanding of data, you know, basic understanding of ML and AI and those things. So you can be a part of the conversations, even though you may not be building the full model, but you can understand what's going on and provide value. And that's what I really like about that book is he tries to bring it down to that level to help everybody understand so we can be part of the conversation together instead of having the black box, as you mentioned, which we've all seen, right? We've all, I've been part of some of those models where you're trying to explain them to somebody and they're just looking at you like, you lost me. I don't know why you have these 50 different things. That's what you wanted. <laughs> but so that, that that's a really important part you speak about there. So you know, kind of speaking about maturity in organizations, they're all over the place. But for companies that are looking to, you know, I think most companies are, to improve their maturity, how would you recommend they kind of go about that? Would you recommend them going and doing an assessment with the tool you have? And how should they maybe think about that if they're a company that really hasn't assessed their FP&A and, you know, they're listening to this and thinking, I really need to assess it and kind of come up with a roadmap to improve my organization, what advice would you offer them? Paul, the biggest question that busy FPNA people have is what is the best practice or better practice, yeah? And how other companies are doing this? And I know from my own experience, when you're running a very busy FPNA process, it's practically no time at all to even to stop and to go and even uh, to go to those conferences. But at those conferences, not enough time to look at this. That is why I'm talking about the power of collaboration, the power of communities that creating this together. So FPNA bought maturity model, a collective tool. It's absolutely free. It's available. It was created for FPNA teams in mind. 
and it will give a very quick check where you are comparing where you should be. Yeah. So at first you evaluate. And what is interesting, I did those exercises with different teams and there could be different results for a management team and for those people that are running FPNA, FPNA mm-hmm. management. It's also very, very interesting. Also, what may happen that uh, different uh, chapters uh, of your organization or even b- different business units, different countries, or even different products, they could be at different level. And it's not surprising because companies are growing by acquisition. So what is important to understand where you are approximately and to understand what is the best in class uh, FPNA? Don't worry if you are not a decision maker. Don't worry if you say that the head office is deciding, but you are one of those regional CFO, finance director, finance uh, managers. What we observe, there are different ways how you can improve it. And the most thing is to start. There are some actions that could be the step change in your maturity. You know, for example, we observed how creating the simple driver-based model, even in Excel, but to understand all of those internal and external drivers, how we can move the company from uh, maybe basic to the next one, yeah? Uh, We've seen situation how implementation of modern flexible FP&A technology can move company from really even two steps to the advanced level, you see? So my suggestion would be start somewhere, start to improve it in your organization, in your particular business unit. Create the difference, communicate this. I've seen uh, situations when the change in regional office created a wonderful transformation uh, in the entire organization. Of course, uh, not every company can afford uh, to spend half a billion US dollars, like, for example, Swiss Re, on analytical transformation, yeah? And it's not a problem at all. There are uh, even changing your models, even changing some the way how you collaborate with each other, it can move your maturity. No, that's a great point. And I, I saw that firsthand in one of the companies I was in. I remember I first learned about the maturity model when I was with this company and I shared it with one of our CFOs. And we got a new regional CFO and I shared it with him. And one of the first things he did is he sat down and said, look, your models are not driver-based in general across the company. And he had us rebuild all our models. We took like two months. It's one of the first things we did. And my first attempt at that model was the most complex model I did. They had to bring in somebody else to help me because it was a really challenging business, a lot of moving parts. And we spent six months working on that model. And I got done and I'm like, we still, I didn't understand the business well enough. I'm like, this still doesn't quite work right. And it was 10 times better than what we had. But I went through, and this is still Excel. They hadn't given us a planning tool, rebuilt that model and got to the point where I could sit down with the business and understand different customers understand different products, understand all the key inputs and how timing impacted things, and was really able to sit down and plan with them. Like I was able to give our product team things they'd never had about the products and the margins. And and that all started with really thinking about a driver-based model and just continuing to iterate. Did I ever get in a, a fancy planning tool? No, I never even got a new billing system. We were a ton of different companies kind of duct taped together, so to speak, from all the acquisitions. And so I can really testify that you can make a lot of progress on the maturity model without spending money. Now, is there some limitations? Sure. I mean, you ne- you're not going to be able to do everything you want. But it's really that mindset goes a long way toward overcoming the different challenges is what I've found. Absolutely. Great examples, Paul. It's all about mindset. Yeah. No, thank you. I agree. It really is about mindset. And that's what I love about what you do and all the different organizations is you get to talk to people about mindset and they get to see other people and see how that mindset 
helps them drive organizations forward. Because you know, we've been hearing the term digital transformation for what, 15 years now? So obviously it's about more than just technology. And I think, you know, that, that key piece is mindset. Much more. That is why our model, maturity model, this is six dimensions, yeah? Mm-hmm. And it's only the model. The real life, it's more dimensions, yeah? Yeah, exactly. You can never, in a model, capture every dimension. You're trying to approximate reality. That's a good point. So a lot, lot of great information there. I really enjoyed kind of talking to you about, you know, what you've seen during the pandemic, you know, how organizations mature and grow and what we're seeing in FP&A. But shifting gears here a little bit, I'm going to ask a, you know, a couple, couple more questions here. But one is a little bit about you. What's something unique about you that we couldn't find on online? Something you might be able to share about yourself for our audience. Uh, you see, uh, I'm a modest person, uh, but definitely I have some very unique background. Not every FPNA professional has this. For example, the one who was born in former USSR in Siberia uh, to Ukrainian family, the one who moved to Ukraine and was uh, educated there with a background uh, in uh, technology, with background in engineering. And the one who moved to the UK 24 years ago, I, I never considered myself to be an Im- immigrant. It was one of the projects that called uh, the Chancellor Financial Sector Scheme. And I came to the UK as one of those uh, lucky uh, who had opportunity to work and to study. And after this, I received uh, two job offers. So to me, it's always uh, realizing my potential and looking what the next one. I think what is unusual also about my organization, the fact that we are quite small, but we are very uh, global. Uh, the fact that every single chapter, 27 together, I opened by myself and in multi- have, have been in multiple meetings. And I think probably it's allowed me to accumulate the view on uh, the local view and this helicopter view, which is very, very important. Yeah. And of course, the unique thing that practically all my admin team, my project managers, they are from Ukraine. And with the start of this unfortunate war, we are supporting Ukraine. So it's part of our revenue is going there. We are supporting with the projects. I continue to hire. And uh, I would say uh, that the world uh, for me, like for any Ukrainian, it's changed completely. Uh, and I would say that the most important thing in FPNA in our life it's inspiration and love and not allowing the evil forces uh, to change our world, to change our freedom and democracy. Ah, another thing, Paul, actually, I always dreamt to travel. And you can imagine a girl who was living in former USSR. I remember very well, you know, like in my teenage years, I really liked to read the books, the travel books, uh, the information about different countries. And I remember very seriously, I was thinking, it's a pity. I never will be able to be in Paris, in London, in New York. And it was absolutely at that moment, it was absolutely certain, yeah, that I never will be able to travel. That is why with my, these incredible travels, uh, I don't take this for granted, like other people who were born with this privilege. Yeah. So what I want to say that always dream. Uh, always create. It's so important and the dreams are coming true. Thank you for sharing all that. A lot of, you know, a lot of heartfelt uh, sentiment there. And, you know, all of us are with the people of Ukraine. I know you have the yellow flower there, the blue, you know, the flag colors. And I know it's very personal for you having family, hiring people from there. I've talked to many of the people you've hired and worked with them on projects and they've all been professional. And, you know, so definitely, you know, all of our heart goes out to everybody 
impacted by this conflict. And we're all, you know, hoping and praying that we can have a peaceful resolution to what's going on there. Cause it's just, you know, that's a sad situation, but you know, even beyond that, I appreciate you sharing your background. Something I've noticed is engineers, physics, people with a strong math background often make some of the best FP&A professionals. I've I, always enjoyed working with people with that background. I've worked with a few because they have a really good knowledge of math and they're often really good critical thinkers and they make great FP&A people. So when you shared that, I was like, that doesn't surprise me you're so good at FP&A because I've always been impressed with people in that background. So thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I'm glad you've been able to travel the world. That's great. And I hope you get to continue to travel and, you know, make a difference for the community because you do, you make a big difference in what you do. Thank you. So this is a fun question we like to ask everybody. So we ask all our guests and it's kind of been a little bit of a kind of fun, almost competition sometimes we'll joke about it. And what's your favorite Excel formula? Do you have a favorite? Paul, I think an Excel, an FP&A goal seek is one of those powerful (laughs) ones, you see, not Mm -hmm. especially now, but uh, even before this to run your sensitivities, to understand where you have to be at this particular parameter, a driver, in order to achieve that, that, and that. So to me, it was really uh, one of those that I like. That's great. You know who also said that? You know Brian Lapidus, right, of AFP. He mentioned Goal Seek. That was, that was the one he listed. He goes, yeah, I ran around the office and not everybody was as excited as I was when I found out about it. It was kind of funny how he was joking. So that's it's an amazing one. That, that's a great one. Analysis, yeah, it's amazing one. No, thank you. I, I think that's one that, you know, everybody can learn. There's benefit from goal seek. So that's a great one. So, you know, as as we move forward, what do you see going forward as the biggest challenge for FPNA? And what do you see as the biggest opportunity? We already discussed this that uh, more data we have, more challenges mm-hmm. we have. And unbelievable uh, for the last five years, practically at each meeting, like 90% of people. Problems with data, problem with data quality, finding uh, data that we can analyze and we can believe in those data. Yeah. So this is, it continues to be uh, the biggest problem. But um, the way how I see it, uh, it's obviously not only analytical transformation for FPNA. Yeah. But uh, this is this change management. Uh, this is the changing of this mentality. Because definitely it's happening. FPNA is going outside of just finance, it's becoming more strategic and influential. More and more, we, we can see how uh, FPNAs are running models for strategic planning. So we have this hope that uh, the strategy execution gap would be served as well. Yeah, it, it would be uh, less and less and less. So it's all about strategic and influential FPNA and the strengths of people that are implementing it. You see, it's not easy to do this change management, and FPNA has the leading role to play. So this is in terms of the uh, challenges. You ask about opportunities as well, Paul. Yes, opportunities as well. You see, uh, the opportunities are tremendous. The reason why I'm doing all of this is because uh, from the uh, beginning of my career, I learned that this is the best part of finance. Maybe other finance people will excuse me, but I think uh, <laughs> if they're not doing FPNA, but to me, uh, this is the most creative part of finance forward-looking, that requires your modeling, that requires your business acumen. But also, um, you know, everywhere where you have creativity, everywhere where you have curiosity, you are doing this to the best, yeah? And this is not a dry finance when you have to close accounts and to follow specific procedures, yeah? So 
I would like to say that just to take this opportunity, love what you do, um, be strong, because we are definitely have quite difficult times ahead of us. You know, I, I just recently read somebody said fantastic phrase that uh, the difficult times create difficult people. The difficult people create easy times. The easy times create easy people and easy people uh, create difficult times. Yeah. What I want to say that uh, there are difficult times for all of us ahead from the political, from the economical point of view, from business point of view, from profession point of view. So we definitely need strong leaders everywhere and in particular FPNA. So uh, I would like to advise people to be those leaders, uh, not uh, just to read and to agree with this, but question all the time and go out there and try to learn, uh, try to be FPNA data scientist or FPNA architect or uh, FPNA storyteller, you know, and run your organization to this environment when you can uh, play your scenarios quickly and make your decisions easily. That is some great advice. And I like, you know, there's so much opportunity out there. And I, I agree with you as well. I think FPNA is the place to be, especially when you're on the, the leading edge. You're helping to drive strategy and create value and doing those things that really allow FPNA to benefit the business versus, you know, just building a budget in a silo and reporting on it each month, which we've all seen. And that, you know, that's not FPNA. And so I, I appreciate your answer there. And I definitely challenge, no question, data is a huge challenge for all of us. That doesn't surprise me. We've talked, you know, a fair, fair amount about that. But just one last question here, and then we'll let you go. I know we're coming up at the end of our time. So if someone was starting in FPNA, they were just starting out their career today, what advice would you offer to someone starting their career? Uh, be curious, uh, be strong. You would need a lot of courage. And another thing, uh, because we still observe that there are, there are a lot of uh, boring and non-value-adding activities in FPNA due to the reasons we discussed. Be the change agent, not the complainer who says that FPNA is not interesting because it's so routine. Yeah, make FPNA not routine. Make this uh, the, the next generation FPNA. So it would be my advice. But also, not only finance professions are important. Everything at the moment. Uh, in, in between of different uh, areas, as we discussed, data science, FPNA, IT, FPNA, you know, modeling, uh, value creation. So just look at all of those uh, different additional additional subjects. Very difficult to find FPNA people that are um, just outside of this routine FPNA. You know, be the change agent. This is the main one. Be curious and be the change agent. That is great advice and. I recently had the pleasure a couple weeks ago of interviewing three college students on FPNA. They're, they're, you know, they're all just doing internships and getting ready to go in their career. And I was really impressed. And they said something similar to what you said about the importance of, you know, being change agents. And it gave me comfort to know we got a lot of really smart, good people coming up. And so that's great advice because, you know, if it's going to change, we have to be the ones to change it. So I, I appreciate that advice. And I've really enjoyed the time with you. Thank you for you know, carving out almost an hour here to be with us. And I'm really excited to share this with our audience. Good luck in your travels. And one last thing, if anyone wants to learn more about FPNA Trends, just real quick, where should they go? Where's the best place to learn about all the exciting things you're doing? Uh, of course, our website, fpa-trends.com. Okay, and we'll make sure we put that in the show notes so everybody can find you. But thank you again. Appreciate you having on the show. Good luck with your future travels. And I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. Thank you. Thank you.